0: Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message.
1: So today I want to look at a very relevant Easter narrative. Easter is like the Super Bowl Sunday of the holy year for the church. We, we celebrate the death of death of Jesus on the cross and new life available to us. It's a season that's filled with hope and it's filled with victory. And yet in the middle of that hope and victory of Easter, we encounter a doubt-filled disciple named Thomas, which I think speaks to many of us today. In the midst of, of Easter celebrations that Celebrate the hope and the victory of Easter as we, as we live in this very real world. The pandemic that we're in. I, I, I sense that there are many who struggle with doubt. And wonder. Is this all worth it? And so we, we look at John chapter 20 and we encounter a guy who is wrestling with his doubts about Jesus. And so let's turn to John chapter 20. I'm going to read verse 24 down to verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. A week later, the disciples were with him in the house again and Thomas was, was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me and have believed, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. John's gospel is often thought to be written to pre-believers. If anybody is ever wanting to explore Jesus and hasn't yet entered into a relationship, oftentimes they read the gospel of John. uh, Because we know that John provides some convincing proofs, some signs, miracles, the teachings of Jesus. And lead people to faith in Christ, but John really is written to believers. John is assuming that people, even people who have walked with Jesus and know Jesus and have seen Jesus do some amazing stuff, will have doubts about Jesus. He assumes that following Jesus will be hard and at times confusing. He assumes that there will be days that we wonder if it would be better not to believe. He assumes that that we may be tempted to cash in our chips. Anyone have some of those days? There are those of you who've grown up in the church and you've never ever known what it's like to be part of a community, not be part of a community that doesn't believe in Jesus. And you think, maybe I should be looking elsewhere. John has written this gospel for you. Maybe you're at university or at school and you, thought, you, know, you think, maybe it'd be easier to be an atheist or a secularist and live without God in this culture. John has written his gospel for you. And if you've had seasons of doubt in your life, and maybe you're going through a period of doubt right now, I think John's gospel is for you. He's writing to people who are struggling to believe. Writing to people who are tempted to give up following Jesus in a world that is filled with skepticism and doubt. Indeed, that was the case for the early church. These people had come out of uh, the Jewish community, and some had come out of the pagan community, worshiping other gods, and they had formed this little community, but it was intense and pressure-filled, and and many of them were considering leaving. And I, I think we find ourselves smack dab at that place today, especially with our increasingly secular worldview. Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher at McGill University, wrote a book called Our Secular Age, and he wrote, this is my paraphrase, in the 1500s, the average person lived in a world in which it was nearly impossible not to believe in God or a God. But he wrote that we live in a world today in which it is impossible to believe in God. The, the reason he wrote that is because the person who lived in the 1500s, the dominant worldview involved the supernatural, almost Everybody believed in the supernatural. But today, the dominant worldview that we live in is a secular worldview, which says, basically, believes that there there is no God. There's only the natural world. There's no life beyond this life. The, The only thing that's real is what you experience right now through your five senses. You only have one life to live. There's nothing beyond this life. So collect all of the experiences that you can before you die. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this puts you in direct conflict with the majority worldview out there in this culture. Mark Sayers, his pastor in Australia, writes that the story of secularism is a story which says that as the world moves away from faith and belief in God, the world will inevitably come a better place. The, the secular culture, the dominant worldview stands in stark contrast to what we believe. We believe that God is active and alive in this world. He's redeeming and restoring our world. And indeed, if we pray as Jesus prayed, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We believe that the more and more the world becomes, a, becomes infused with the presence of God, that it will actually be redormed, re- redeemed and restored. And we'll become a better place. Your trust in Jesus is tested every day because the message you receive through media and education and politics delivers a message that is contrary to the gospel. And Jesus knew, I think, that his followers would struggle with doubt in this world. And is, is it any wonder that right near the end of the gospel, we encounter a disciple that we've come to know as Doubting Thomas, which is sort of an unfair name for him. No one wants to be known as you know, doubting Debbie or faithless Fred or something like that. Like, how would you like your name to exist like that for generations to come? Doubting Thomas. Proceeding this passage, Jesus has gone to the cross, he's been resurrected, and the disciples are locked away because they, they feared the backlash of the Jewish leaders. They're associated with Jesus, and, you know, they thought if Jesus was killed, surely we'll be next. They're hiding, and Jesus appears to them. And John tells us that their fear turned to joy. They saw and believed. But Thomas wasn't in the room. Not the best time for you know, like a bathroom break or a sick day. He's not there. Later, the disciples tell him what they experience, and Thomas doesn't believe them. And who can blame him? And so as we look at Thomas, we want to look at how we might want to deal with our own doubts. The first thing I want to see us to see from this passage and that I see in this passage is that Jesus actually loves doubters. He loves doubters. A week after the disciples see the risen Lord, Jesus appears among them a second time. He's radiantly alive, and this time Thomas is present, and Jesus graciously invites Thomas to satisfy his need for proof. Examine the scars. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So, so let's understand Thomas's backstory. In Jesus' time, it was commonly known that, that rabbis would go looking for students or disciples, and the rabbis would, would look for the most qualified, highly educated disciples who had the greatest potential, and they would ask these disciples to follow them, and then they would train them. Being chosen as a rabbi was, was one of the greatest breaks in their era. Jesus was a dynamic and controversial rabbi, and one day Jesus approaches this guy named Thomas, and he invites him to follow him. You need to understand something about Thomas. He, he, he wasn't selected. He was passed by previously. He wasn't educated enough. He, he wasn't among the elite. He wasn't disciple material. And I think that's why it was easy for him to leave his family business and everything else behind to follow Jesus. He staked the rest of his life on following Jesus. And then, that's why when Jesus gave his life on the cross, three years later, Thomas doesn't even show up for the event. Maybe he sank into what was a deep depression. All of the other disciples gather, but Thomas is AWOL. He's lost. He's panicked. His, His world is spinning. He doesn't know which way is up. And the fact that the victorious risen Christ shows up for Thomas a week later reveals something. I think about the love of Jesus for Thomas in the midst of his doubts. He doesn't just walk away. Forget about him. He shows up. In the midst of Thomas's doubt, Jesus loves those who struggle with doubt. He loves those who ask questions. He loves those who perhaps at one time were strong believers and now are riddled with doubt. And I think that stands in stark contrast to the environment that many perhaps have grown up in or lived in. In an environment where belief is valued, doubt is perceived as threatening. It's not welcomed easily into a faith community. It's not welcomed into families where faith is cherished. Many churches understand that doubt should be ignored or suppressed but never talked about. Don't express your doubts or your questions. You might have a weak faith. Pray your doubts away. When my daughter was in her grade 12 year of high school, we were having faith conversations, and she looked at me and said, in defiance, I don't know if I believe this stuff anymore, Dad. See, I came to know Jesus when I was 19 years old. I didn't grow up in a home that followed Christ. And one of the things that I wanted more than anything else is for my kids to know Christ and to follow him. For the rest of their lives. I I didn't want them to have to face some of the the darkness that I faced without Jesus. I I didn't want her to go through all of this. But then I remembered that I had to wrestle through my doubts. And, And that there were still some days as a pastor that I wrestled with doubts. And this was just an honest part of her own journey. You see, the truth of the matter is that everybody experiences it at some time. And you may be wrestling with questions, do I believe this whole God thing? You know, the one thing that the story of Thomas reveals to me is that Jesus has a tremendous amount of time, a tremendous amount of compassion for those who doubt. He's not put off by it. He's not scared of it. In fact, just the opposite. I think this story shows us that Jesus has a special place in his heart for those are sincerely doubting. And maybe even Jesus draws more closely to us in our doubts than in our certainty. If you're doubting today, I think you need to know that Jesus is close to you. And that he loves you. And that he has compassion for you. And he's drawing near to you in the midst of your doubt. You need to know that. Having known Rob for some time now, I think he said eight to ten years, which I think is pretty much bang on. I know Rob doesn't shy away from the hard questions. In fact, he asks lots of hard questions. He doesn't shy away from the hard conversations. And and from what I know about this church, I know it's the kind of church that would love you and give you lots of time and attention if you were a doubter. You don't have to have it all together to belong here. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all the answers You can ask questions. I think I can fairly say, right, Rob? Doubters are welcome here. And maybe you're tracking online and you've never, ever stepped into this space. I want you to know that you're welcome. You're welcome here. This is the kind of place where you can bring your questions. These, These are the kind of people who would draw near to you and love you and welcome you. Even in your doubt. Because Jesus, quite honestly, just loves doubters. The second thing that I see in this text is that Jesus calls doubters to trust. He calls them to trust. Thomas, again, hasn't shown up for a week. He's devastated. A week later, disciples are gathered in that house again, and Thomas is with them. The doors are locked. Jesus appears to them, and he says, peace be with you. Jesus' greeting, again, is the kindest, most generous kind of greeting that you could give in that world. The phrase pronounces God's rich blessing in someone's life. Jesus gives Thomas the most gracious and generous greeting possible. He doesn't scold him for his doubt. How dare you doubt me? He doesn't belittle him, he doesn't write him off. Put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands, see my side. Stop doubting and believe. The phrase stop doubting and believe when translated literally means stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. Here's the thing with doubt. Doubt is not bad. It's not sinful. But it's also not a static condition. John is making a crucial statement, I think, with this point. Stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. You can't live in the same doubts forever. We'll either move toward unbelief or we'll move toward belief as we grapple with our doubts. And the word does not mean that we have to have all the answers, that we have to understand everything intellectually. The word believe simply means trust. Stop becoming untrusting and get on with becoming more trusting. Am I willing to trust in Jesus based on the fact that he came, he lived, he died, he taught, he died, he rose from the grave. Got that out of order, if you didn't notice. <clears throat> Am I willing to trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? The Gospel of John shows that, that trust doesn't happen in a moment. Tr- trust is ongoing. It, it's progressively renewed. In each challenge, trust is something that grows over time, perhaps in greater degrees. Trust is something that we have to exercise every day. It's not just a, a one-time thing. Oftentimes we hear of belief in those terms. I made a decision for Christ when I was 18, and I've always been a believer since that time. I've always, I've always believed. Well, trust is not just a one-time event. It's something that happens, we exercise over time, progressively. It's something that we have to exercise when life becomes hard and confusing. It's something that we have to exercise. We're, we're in a context, in an environment where our faith is under fire every day. We have to exercise trust. It doesn't mean that we have all of the answers for everyone or even to satisfy our own intellectual curiosity. It means that I trust in Christ. I put the full weight of my life in his hands. And it's hard to trust. It's hard to trust. John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29 says this, when, his, when they, his disciples, asked him, that's asked Jesus, what, will, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Jesus answered the work of God is to do this, to believe, to trust in the one that he sent. You, your one work, Jesus says to the disciples, is to trust me, the one thing you're supposed to do with all of your life, with all of your being, is to put the full weight of your trust in my hands. You don't have to do anything else, just trust And that's hard because most of us don't trust anyone other than ourselves. And finding it hard to keep believing doesn't mean that I don't believe. It means that believing isn't easy. It means that it is not a relaxing activity. Believing won't be easy in the moments of life that are difficult. Believing in the midst of a pandemic... Won't be easy. We need to do the hard work of trusting. One of my mentors, a man who was in his 90s, he grew up in the church, followed Christ all of his life, served on elders' boards and boards across Canada, lived out his faith in the marketplace, had a a great marriage and family, and gave his whole life to following Jesus. And as I, as I met with him, he was in the hospital and, and uh, on his deathbed. And I asked him, How can I pray for you? And he said, Pray that I'll keep trusting Jesus. Pray that I will keep on trusting Jesus. Another friend of mine, Matt, who was in his 30s, was diagnosed with cancer, stage four cancer. Young family, three young girls. And near the end, I I would go visit him when he was in the hospital and he had worship music playing and he would sing worship music. And he said, these songs are particularly important for me, especially at night when I can't sleep. And I said, why is that? He said, that's when it's the most difficult to trust. I need to keep exercising trust. pray that my faith won't fail in those hard, dark moments. Trusting is work. Trusting is work. If you think that trusting is easy, <laughs> it's not. And Jesus is constantly calling us to trust him. Constantly calling us forward to trust him in the difficult moments of life. He's saying to you today, trust me. Will you trust me in the midst of your questions? Will you trust me in the midst of this pandemic? Will you trust me in the midst of your trials your difficulties will you trust me in the midst of a financial crisis will you trust me in the midst of a marriage that's difficult will you trust me that's what he's asking us to do and then lastly i see that jesus promises life if we dare exercise our trust in him and and i think there's this is a legit question why should i move to greater trust of jesus why should I work through my doubts and move on toward more trusting rather than more doubting? John chapter 20 says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his, his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and underscore this, and that by trusting, you may have life in his name. If we can trust Jesus, the promise is that we will have life In his name. This is the payoff. I'm just going to read a few verses from John. Some of them are on the screen, others aren't. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, mankind. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, Jesus said, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes and trusts in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. And then John chapter 10, verse 10, one of my favorite passages. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is his promise to us. Fullness of life. A life that's indestructible, a life that's lasting, a life that's sufficient, a life that's overflowing. For, for John, Jesus came to give believers more than this promise that will one day be fulfilled in eternity. We just, you know, get to gut it out now. And then one day when we get to heaven, that's when we'll experience eternal life. No, John is saying this life is something that begins right now and will ultimately be fulfilled in eternity. But right now, we get to experience the life that Jesus promised. And the only way that we can possess and experience this fullness of life is by putting our faith the full weight of our trust in Jesus. It's not something that you can earn. It's not something you can make happen. The only way to enter into it is to put the full weight of our trust in him. See, every day you and I are trying to trust other things for life. We're building our lives around things that we think will actually give us the kind of life that we want. How many of us have ever stood somewhere, like on a beach in Mexico or in Jasper, the overlooking... Uh, the valley as you stand on the mountain and you think to yourself, oh, this is the life. <laughs> this is the life. We're all trying to, to find life. All of us are trying to find life. We have this insatiable thirst for life. We're questing for life every day. Most of us think that we're completely intellectual and we've arrived at our, at our decisions quite intellectually but the reality is is that you are driven by a desire for life the market understands that and they promise you things like comfort and peace and security and desire and adventure and significance and intimacy and love pornography makes billions of dollars every year appealing to our desire for life for intimacy for love for excitement Social media is built around your desire for recognition and community. Money appeals to our desire for freedom and security. The truth of the matter is you are building your life right now around things that you haven't necessarily arrived at rationally, but every day in our search for love and beauty and pleasure and justice and significance and belonging and community and hope, we are intensely driven by a desire for life. And when we trust Jesus, we're turning away from everything else. We're, we're, we're looking at those experiences in life to bring us life. In our finances, in the material things we purchase. We're looking at, for it in relationships and in education and career. Everything is geared toward finding life for your soul. And when we place the full weight of our trust in Jesus, we're saying, I'm turning away from those things as the source of my life. And I'm now trusting in Jesus for my life. And this lifelong process will be me turning away from the things that I normally would look to for life so that I can find ultimate, true, abundant, and eternal life in Christ. John is saying, if we trust Jesus, the desires of our heart will be fully met in him. The life that we long for will be fully met in him. In the midst of your doubt, remember that. Jesus promises you life. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And the question that John poses to us is are we willing to grow in trust in Jesus rather than in the things we thought would bring us life? And so as I close, I want to give you that question to grapple with. I want to invite you just to, to bow your head with me. If you're online, if you're at home, wherever you are, Let's just bow our heads together. Here's a question. Just ask Jesus In what ways, in what areas of my life do I need to trust you for life to the full? What are the things that I've been trusting in that I need to turn away from and trust in you instead? So let's just bow our heads. Thank you, Jesus, for your promise of life. Life to the full, life abundant. Life that's sufficient, life that's indestructible. Life that's eternal, that begins now through trust in Jesus. Help us to keep turning away from the things we think will buy us, earn us, give us, secure life for us. Those experiences, the bank accounts, social media, the relationships. Help us to see those and order those things under you, our source of life. Thanks, Jesus. In your name, amen. Grace and peace.